This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening in. This is Sean Vincent. Our podcast today is the third and final installment of my recent conversation with Don West and Steve Moses. Don West is National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe. Veteran criminal defense attorney Steve Moses is a CCW Safe contributor and a well-regarded firearms instructor. We have been talking these last two weeks about this list that the CCW Safe founders and some of the law enforcement experts they've got on staff have put together to describe the top 10 considerations that an armed defender should have in the wake of a self-defense shooting. This list is not comprehensive. It's not definitive. It's just a list of really good points of things that as an armed defender you should have in your mind should you ever unfortunately be forced to use your firearm in self-defense. We've covered a lot of ground. If you haven't heard those episodes, the last two episodes, uh, I suggest you pop back and listen to them, but uh, you don't have to do that for today's conversation to make sense. Uh, Because we're wrapping up this conversation, this podcast is going to be a little bit shorter than usual. So if you're anything like me and you listen to your podcast while you're exercising, you're in luck. You can cut your workout a little bit short today, about half an hour or so. Uh, We're going to start our conversation talking about uh, something that people don't think about. And that's if you have any injuries, uh, you need to get those reported to responding officers and documented because they're going to become important during the investigation and, God forbid, during the criminal defense, should you get to that point. And we're going to end our conversation about the importance of uh, managing the information around the case. And this includes the type of conversations you have on social media about firearms and self-defense and certainly the types of engagements that you have following a self-defense incident including anything that happens online our best advice best thing is just to shut down your online presence uh so stop talking online because anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law in the course of our conversation we're going to make reference to the stephen maddox case stephen maddox is a ccw safe member ccw safe had his back supported him got him all the way through trial to an acquittal and steve's very outspoken about his experience he has specifically given us permission to talk about his case so that you can learn the lessons from his experience so here's my conversation with Steve Moses and Don West finishing up our chat about post-incident actions. Thanks for listening. Here, next on the list, though, is informing the responding officers about any injuries that you have. So if you have been attacked you're going to have some evidence of that physical attack. And in the end, self-defense is justified. The use of deadly force is justified only when you're facing, you know, you have a, a belief of imminent great bodily harm or death. And if you have injuries at all, those are probably more likely not going to support your claim that you feared that those injuries 
would become worse in that you were in physical contact with somebody and there's no time there's no time that those injuries are more demonstratively uh present than immediately after the fact and um if you're not diagnosed with those injuries they don't carry nearly as much weight as evidence after the fact and and don you and i worked on a case where uh the evidence that showed how bloody our our guy was immediately after the fact wasn't shown to us for for months and and he actually declined some medical treatment that he could have had that uh, you know, probably would have helped the case I think the rule is if there's any kind of contact that you've had that could have resulted in an injury even if the full effect isn't felt at the moment that you should request uh, medical attention. Don't be the tough guy, the macho guy, and say, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. You might be bleeding at that. I, like you say, you, we've had cases where people are bleeding and they say, nah, I don't need any medical attention. Well, there's much more value to the case than just whether or not you need a stitch or a Band-Aid. It is clear proof that you had physical contact, that you were injured as a result of this contact. And while legally you don't have to be injured in order to act in lawful self-defense, the fact that you were injured means there was contact, that there was physical force applied to you in some fashion. And even if the injury is relatively minor, if it is consistent with what happened and your explanation ultimately of what happened, it becomes very valuable evidence, and that would be lost. So among beyond just being treated for the injury, it helps document it. It documents it from a medical standpoint, and it becomes very important to the case ultimately. In fact, in some respects, if you have the presence of mind to do this, uh, the police should photograph you if there's any evidence of injury, if you're bleeding. Uh, they may or may not photograph you though. And if they don't photograph you, I think it would be helpful to ask uh, the police officer to take some pictures if you have blood all over your face or the back of your head or something like that to document that because no doubt uh, paramedics will respond. Uh, they'll respond because of the person you shot. They'll also respond and treat you if you have any evidence of injury that doesn't require immediately immediate transport to the hospital. And if the photographs of you aren't taken before you're treated by the paramedics, it will be lost because they probably won't take the pictures, but they'll clean you up. They'll wipe off all the blood. They'll do something so they can do their own medical assessment of what the source of the blood was and how uh, serious the injury is so that they can make treatment decisions. So preserving the evidence as it was is important and then getting any medical help that you need is really important too, not just for your own health but also for the evidentiary integrity of the case. Uh, I wanted to just offer something. Uh, it's It came to me uh, because of some cases that I've worked on and that is um, the person that you shot, uh, especially, well, if, if, they, if they die, they'll be taken to the morgue and ultimately autopsied. And there will be toxicology screens done 
of the deceased. They'll look, f uh, a typical drug screen will be a, just a regular part of the autopsy. And of course, if the presence of alcohol or drugs will become relevant if it's otherwise relevant to the incident itself. And yet, if you, unless you get medical attention or you specifically request uh, some sort of tox screen of yourself, it won't exist. And that will be a point that someone may make down the road if there's a claim that, well, they <clears throat> screened the blood of the guy you shot, but the police didn't even bother to give you uh, a blood test. So they were obviously biased in your favor and they were looking out for you and therefore it's a faulty, shoddy investigation. And you know how that stuff can go. It can just spiral out of control. So I'm thinking at least you should have the presence of mind if you can, and you know that you haven't been consuming alcohol or drugs, that you might even consider asking for a breath test or a blood test as part of law enforcement's response, saying, I'm happy to take a breath test, uh, I'm happy to take my, you can take my blood, I'm not under the influence of alcohol or drugs, and just get that off the table right away so that it can't show up later in the case and there's no opportunity to show one way or another. So I've never known that to happen. Um, I think that if you have the presence of mind to do it in the right case, it could cut off an avenue of, uh, of concern. You know, that brings up another point because I do know a lot of concealed carriers uh, who think nothing of going out to a restaurant and having three or four beers or mixed drinks while carrying concealed and you know how that might look if you're engaged in an altercation after that and you have that much alcohol in your system and so i think that's something that concealed carriers should be very much aware of is that if you're going to go out armed with the idea of getting some drinking done uh, that may not work in your favor later well it's going to impair your judgment isn't it to some degree whether it's to a significant enough degree that it's going to change how you would respond, but it creates an opportunity for an argument. And certainly the last thing people want is concealed carriers with impaired judgment. Let's talk about this next point. It's called controlling information about the incident. And Donnie touched on this a little bit. We'll explore it more now here. But uh, to use the Miranda cliche, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And that's not just in the immediate aftermath. That's things that you said uh, before or long after the incident that are about the incident or about your mindset, about self-defense, about being a concealed carrier. Uh, what you post on social media a year ago could come back to haunt you today and certainly what you post on social media uh, in the wake of a self-defense shooting is going to be looked at by investigators and could be used against you i i feel like um a good rule of thumb I, I wish every defendant i've ever worked with would take the advice of just stop using social media until this whole thing's over because mm -hmm. there's not a lot mm -hmm. great that can come out of it and lots of terrible things can happen I also want to bring up in this conversation, too, that if you are uh, detained and you go 
to a jail, every phone call you make is going to be recorded. Those statements, now they're to a lawyer, they shouldn't be used, but I'm not entirely convinced they're never listened to by somebody who has some influence. So <clears throat> neighbors, friends, family, <clears throat> you need to keep a tight lip in the, uh, the the days and weeks following a shooting while an investigation is going on because all that could become evidence used against you. Tell me a little bit about that from your perspective. Well, you know, it might be one of those, um, duh, but people don't think about how broadly the investigation will be taken uh, in, in that sense. In the Stephen Maddox case, I think there were three or 4,000 pages of discovery from social media, from Stephen's media account, from the uh, deceased's media account, the police are going to get your phone. They're going to get it at the scene. They may not get into it that night, but they're going to get a search warrant and be able to um, inspect it. So they're going to see your history. They're going to see the text messages. <clears throat> they're going to see whatever evidence is otherwise relevant to what they think uh, happened that night. And likewise, they're going to get social media accounts um, backward and forward looking for information that helps reveal, among other things, and maybe first and foremost, your mindset. Because that's really all that matters at the end. If the forensic evidence is pretty clear, uh, the only thing that really matters is what you were thinking and why you were thinking it at the time that you pulled the trigger. And ultimately, whether in response to what was happening at the moment, that decision was relevant. And if you have a lot of trash talk on social media where you're bragging about um, your skill with a firearm and you have labels on your guns and bumper stickers on your vehicle that can be viewed as someone who's got an attitude and someone who's looking for a way to uh, to use their gun, then that sets you up. That undermines this whole notion of being reasonableness, uh, of, of reasonableness. And that's not just going back, it's moving forward. So all of that uh, will be examined and it's never too soon to be smarter about social media in that sense. Uh, Sean, maybe you could talk about how social media plays into everything in a trial these days, including the backgrounds of witnesses and the backgrounds of jurors. It's not limited just to the accused, but it extends well into the, the entire case and that their histories are also examined and uh, explored. Sure. Well, yeah, and it's such a broad topic, so I'll try to condense it into just a, a few comments here for the sake of this conversation, Don. But the, the truth is that you know when we do a trial, we do a background search on every potential member of the jury, and we look at things that might inform what kind of juror they're going to be, whether they're being honest with their answers to the lawyer's questions in courtroom, and also what types of predispositions they'll have about guns, about self-defense, 
about other elements that might be part of the case, about uh, alcohol, if alcohol is a part of the case. These are things that we look at and we extend that to the witnesses that we deal with. We, you know, the first thing that I do when I'm involved in a criminal case is scour the internet for everything that's public that the defendants posted that we know is going to be collected by somebody else and potentially used against them. So, um, you know, and, and here's where that comes down to, right? So we're, we live in a time where it's common to be on social media where we make public comments to large audiences to where we're on camera anytime we're outside practically in, in any kind of urban or suburban setting. And, you know, Steve, this is where mindset comes into play, right? The, the concealed carry choice is not just... Uh, 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 in case I'm attacked or it, it is all the time. Just like you say, you don't go drinking with the uh, pistol strapped to your side. You don't do things that impair your judgment. And the attitude that you have as a concealed carrier, any evidence of that that exists before or after you're ever forced to use your firearm in self-defense will give a window into what's in your heart as a concealed carrier. So, um, um, yeah, it's going to show up. And here's the thing, like, there's no, nobody can tell on you better than you. You know what I'm saying? Like when you have a bumper sticker on your car that has a silhouette of a long barreled 357 revolver and it says, I'm your Huckleberry. That's not great for us, Don, when we have to talk to the jury about what your attitude towards self-defense is whenever i see a, a joke sign that says that has a silhouette of a, a pistol and it says you know we don't call 911 the implication is if you come into the past the fence on my auto uh repair shop you're going to get shot and we're not going to call 911 beforehand that's something i don't want to have to deal with on the the defense side in the aftermath these are these are terrible these look terrible they're designed to make you look bad and so so i feel like you know when we talk about firearms and the second amendment and self-defense online we do it with with a sense of responsibility a respect for life uh and and almost as a this is how i see my role now i am an advocate for responsible gun ownership uh, and that starts with what's in your heart and why you do it. Steve, I, I, you get all sorts of people with different attitudes who come to you in your classes. Just just tell me a little bit about, you know, I, I imagine some of them, you're like, okay, this is the kind of person that we want. This is the kind of responsible armed citizen that that makes our society better. And then there's other yahoos where you think, oh gosh, that uh, <laughs> their attitudes are, are gonna take them in a bad direction. Yeah, we're actually concerned that the way that they act reflects poorly you know, on the rest of us. Uh, one of the things that I really find an issue with are the people, not so much that actually post kind of stuff like where perhaps a, uh, a bank robber gets killed or, you know, something really bad happens to another person that we would consider to be, you know, a criminal or, you know, an undesirable in some way. And you see these things, good. Well, he got what he deserved. Darwinism in its finest form. And, you know, making all these little comments and laughs and likes and everything. I think that in and of itself is a mistake, too. And that's something that I really encourage concealed carriers to avoid doing. 
you know, anything that you've done in the past, if there's any way you can kind of go back and say, man, I was wrong to do that. Uh, and definitely not do anything like that going forward, I think is well advised. One of the things about the people that we actually have in the majority of our classes is for the most part, and I mean, really pretty much for the most part, they are law abiding citizens. They want no trouble. They just don't want people to harm them or harm their loved ones. And most of them have pretty good attitudes. But, you know, when you go to shooting matches or you go to gun shows, uh, you go to conferences or such, there will be a lot of people, though, that walk around, you know, with the little Punisher skull on the back plates of their Glocks, uh, you know, with all the uh, stuff that you talked about, you see, you know, posted on their, or, you know, stuck to their, you know, their, their windshields, their bumpers, you know, driver only carries $20 worth of ammunition, you know, all this other stuff. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't heard that one yet. That's yeah, good. I kind of like, <laughs> not that much ammunition anymore, but the point <laughs> is just advertising, you know, that, hey, uh, you have any kind of mindset where you think it's right to harm other people for the least possible reason. And if harm comes to them, well, good, that's funny, haha. Ha. I think that is to be avoided. Well, Don, you mentioned this earlier, and this is at the center of every self-defense case. Is It's an impossible task because you're, you're saying, yes, someone was shot and killed. You're saying, yes, I did it, but it was justified. And it's all going to hinge on what the juror's impression is of whether your fear or your belief of imminent harm or death was reasonable. And reasonable's the best of the subjective terms that we have that they can latch onto. We're asking a juror to look into a criminal defendant's heart and tell us, did they did they have reasonable fear or what is usually the case, some sort of anger, animosity, or revenge? Usually the case is, that's usually the alternative to reasonable fear to the juror's mind. And, and anything that you do in your life that makes you appear more reasonable uh, is a benefit. And anything you do that's going to show that you don't value human life or that you're making decisions based on anger, animosity, or revenge is going to sentence you to a very long prison stay unless it can be mitigated in a court of law, which is not a fight you want to have. You know, in criminal law, every criminal offense is broken down into elements. And those elements are read to the jury in the jury instructions at the end of the case. They're examined, of course, by uh, the prosecutors in charging the case and certainly known and understood by law enforcement when they're investigating a case. And in the typical case, the prosecutor must convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt of each element of the case. And in a first-degree murder case, for example, they would have to prove that um, a human being is dead. It's pretty obvious when there's the body on the ground. They have to prove that um, the person on trial is the person that shot and killed them. And then they have to prove the circumstances of the crime from a mental standpoint. Was the crime 
calculated and premeditated? Was it a result of what's typically known as second-degree murder, anger, ill will, spite, depraved mind stuff? Or was it kind of a, a negligence, uh, a manslaughter type thing, a gross negligence? Well, when you act in lawful self-defense, you've checked off pretty much all of the boxes, right? You've checked off, yes, I'm the person who did it. Yes, I intended to do it. And as a result of what I did, the person is dead or uh, in a homicide is dead or seriously injured. So the only question becomes whether what the state of mind was, what your mental intent was. And it starts with you intending to cause them harm or death. So all that's left is whether or not you can also check the boxes on self-defense. Were you in fact facing an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death? And was it reasonable for you to use deadly force in response to that? And there has to be some evidence of that. So when you go into a self-defense murder trial, you've already committed murder except for the affirmative defense of self-defense. So alibi is gone. Um, accident is gone. I've had right. some cases where the guy says, I didn't mean to pull the trigger. And we've talked about those, right? Yeah, there is no accidental <laughs> self-defense. It is an affirmative deliberate action yeah there's no insanity defense so you've eliminated you've eliminated all the real defenses that uh, most guys you know will look for and you you have a legal justifiable uh, but affirmative defense and uh, um, and when you act reasonably in the face of that threat you haven't committed a crime but um, it's not because you didn't do all of the things that would otherwise make you guilty. It's because under the circumstances under which you did it, you had a legal basis for it. You had a justify, a legally recognized uh, justified uh, reason for it. It's, uh, it's different. You know, defending a self-defense case is very different than any other kind of criminal case, I think. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's presented differently. It's thought through differently. Uh, you, how aggressive I think the defense lawyers have to be, how proactive they have to be, is very different than a common approach to criminal defense, which is you just hope for a reasonable doubt. And uh, unlike most criminal cases, a self-defense case often requires the uh, shooter, the defender, to take the stand. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different dynamic than most other criminal cases. Yeah. The, this final point that they uh, is on this 10-point list for anyone who is actually counting or could determine the chapter titles of our conversation. It's provide identifying information only. It's almost a recap of the whole interaction with anybody, especially law enforcement, in the wake of a self-defense shooting. Is and, and let's just use this as an example to reinforce this idea that the the you know any practically any evidence that is presented to trial any statement from witnesses any testimony has to be authenticated and uh the judge is going to tell the jury to decide how much weight it has and decide the credibility of the witness decide the credibility of even the science 
behind some forensic evidence because you've been deeply involved in hearings to validate or invalidate the science uh, behind certain techniques for analyzing evidence. Everything to, it can be put into controversy or dispute, but the, the statements that you've made outside the context of an interrogation on social media, to people, to witnesses, the bumper stickers on your car, all these things, those are, are self-authenticating. There's no easier way to impeach a witness than to pull up a social media page from a year ago that says the complete opposite of what they're trying to say, right? And and so when you've said things uh, in a context that wasn't you trying to uh, prove your innocence, which there's some credibility, you know, people are going to be suspicious of that. But it, it, things outside that context... Um, you're just going to tell on yourself and it's hard to throw those into controversy. They're self-authenticating. And so the, the, the big resonance on this is shut your mouth, stop posting on social media, tell the police only what they need to hear and get your counsel involved right away. And that you have to take this seriously. Steve, your thoughts okay. on that? Uh, I agree with all that, and also um, train and continue to obtain knowledge uh, about, you know, what's involved in self-defense, uh, understand kind of, you know, who represents a threat, uh, what are the reasons that you might be justified in using force or deadly force. Uh, do it now, and if you do, not only are your chances uh, diminished, that I think you'll ever have to use force to defend yourself. I think the chances are increased that you will be successful in not only preserving your life, the lives of your loved ones, but all of the uh, legal uh, issues that you'll have to deal with in the future. I think those are going to be minimized. So now's the time to start preparing for that day that we hope never comes. Don. Well, I suppose in my mind, it boils down to um, don't make it worse for yourself. Obviously, get the training you need to be able to be responsible and to respond definitively to that threat should you ever have to deal with it. But don't make your legal jeopardy worse. Don't say those things on social media that come back to question you who's telling the truth about having to defend yourself. Don't run off at the mouth with the police and risk saying something that comes back to haunt you against the acts that you did lawfully. Don't have an attitude that causes people to question your intent. Don't do those things that will make an otherwise lawful self-defense case uh, questionable. So help your lawyers by helping yourself and just don't make it worse. Lawyers don't change the facts. Lawyers do the best they can with the facts they have. They can employ expert witnesses. They can have forensic examinations and hire jury consultants and social media consultants to get you the best possible outcome under your facts, but they can't change the facts. So just don't make bad facts, you know, just don't make it worse for yourself and give you the best possible chance of having the right 
and fair outcome should you ever be involved in one of these cases. And if there's anything that our listeners have taken away from this conversation, I hope it's that this illustrates how much legal peril that you are in in the immediate hours, minutes, days after a self-defense shooting. It's really a precarious time, no matter how justified it seems, because it's all going to be scrutinized heavily. And that's an extraordinary, at the very best, that's an extraordinary pain in the ass that could take weeks or months of your life and leave you in this paralyzing limbo where you don't know if you're going to be justified or spend the rest of your life in prison uh, beyond the emotional turmoil of having taken somebody's life. So it's, in all cases, we come back to this. If there was any way to avoid this shooting in the first place... You don't have to worry about any of this, and and if I mean if we, we all know that there are we see cases all the time where the the defender really had no other good options and did the right thing, but so often we see that there are choices that an armed defender could have made in the minutes leading up or seconds even leading up to a case that could have uh, circumvented the shooting in the first place, and if we can do that safely. Gosh, isn't that always a, a better way to go? You know, I, I'm with you 100% plus. And even if you are vindicated at the end, even if you are found not guilty, even if someone else has paid your expenses along the way, even if the jury says, yeah, that was lawful self-defense, it's taken you a couple of years to get there. It's caused you daily, hourly uh, anxiety for that entire period of time, not knowing every day what the final outcome is, is going to be. So what we're talking about, there may be situations where ultimately your actions are completely lawful, where you have acted in lawful self-defense. But what we're suggesting is if there is an opportunity leading up to that to take another course to uh, avoid in some way so that you never wind up in the position, even if you act completely legally, you're always better off. You're always better off in terms of your own, um, not just legal risk being avoided, but the, the, the drama in your life, the, the stress, the anxiety, the effect on your family. And you can't get that back, you know. You you can't get that back no matter uh, how quickly the jury comes back with an acquittal. Any final thoughts, Steve? Well, just kind of like Claude said, uh, you know, it's best to have a plan for all elements of this, uh, whether it is uh, managing potential threat, dealing with a potential threat, or dealing with the uh, legal aftermath. Uh, have a good plan in place, and it's easier to uh, revise that plan as needed than come up with one on the spot. All right, friends, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. That's the end of that conversation, so we're cooking up something good for you next time. Until then, be smart, stay safe. Take care.
It's all right. You can stop your workout now. I give you permission. <laughs>